Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. That's a great uh, drag name. Anna Sale. Anna Salent. Oh, Anna <laughs> Salent. Has no one ever said that to you? Not once in all you? No. <laughs> This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Seale. Once upon a time, Bob the Drag Queen was 19 years old and working summer gigs at a children's theater in Montana. Then she won RuPaul's Drag Race in 2016. Take whatever you love about yourself and walk into the world Since then, she's put out two stand-up specials and just finished filming the third season of the HBO Max show We're Here, which is a reality show that I love about queer and trans people in small American towns and cities who, with the help of Bob and her co-hosts, get comfortable taking up more space. Each episode ends with a fantastic drag show finale. When I connected with Bob on Zoom, she was in L.A. and holding her phone in the other hand. Oh, hold on. So, Miss Smith, I'm actually, I'm here, but I'm also in an interview right now. So if you see me talking to someone, I'm talking to this lovely lady, Miss Anna Sale. But I am, but I can see what's going on here. Sorry, I'm in a, I'm in a, um family uh thread where we're, me as a family we're buying a house together what it's, there's a lot going on wait but i am but i am with you though i thought you were like watching security footage of your com- of your compound or something no 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 no. when you say when you told miss smith you are watching what's going on what is currently happening that you're watching right now they're they're looking at the um the kitchen wait you're it's like a real-time facetime of property you may purchase happening right now. <laughs> yeah so i can't uh, but I'm assuming that what she's saying is these are granite countertops, and she's probably now saying, "And here is a pantry." I'm assuming because I, I turned the audio off. I so see I'm assuming beautiful she's going, dark now floors right there. I see it. It's yeah, like it's HGTV. really nice, right? Yeah. <laughs> so may, maybe maybe one day when you leave Wyoming, you can come visit me and my family in our <laughs> estate <laughs> in, a, in Atlanta. Oh my god, how exciting! I've also started saying Atlanta like my um, I, I, you know Larry Owens. Larry Owens was in the original off-Broadway cast of Strange Loop. And there is a a song called um, Writing a Gospel Play. And at one point, um, one of the characters goes, 
Um, because your cousin has the money to buy herself a home in Atlanta. Because she got the money to build herself a chateau in Atlanta. So now I always say, to buy herself a home in Atlanta. I always think of, say it like that now. So thanks, Larry. You ruined the way I say Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Will you tell me who in your family are you buying property with? My mother. Mm-hmm. I mean, as of right now, my family lives in, in a pretty small place. So whenever I go home, I actually sleep in bed with my mom because mm-hmm. there's no extra rooms. Mm-hmm. And my niece sleeps in the same room. So we're trying to get everyone their own rooms. Okay. Now that I know this is happening right now with your mother, I want to start by asking you about your mom. Um, where were you born? I was born in Columbus, Georgia at the medical center. Columbus, Georgia. When you think about Columbus, Georgia and um, what it felt like to grow up in that community for you, like what was it like? So I'm, I moved out of Columbus in third grade, but um, I remember living on living off of um, Victory Drive, which is not a particularly nice area um, in Columbus. But as a kid, I really loved it a lot. And, you know, I think about, um, I think about my mom giving me coffee in the mornings. Well, I thought it was coffee. I told everyone that my mom gives me coffee. And then one day a teacher at school let me drink some coffee. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) This isn't coffee. This is not coffee. And she was like, I thought you drank coffee every day. I was like, and then I got home. My mom was like, why am I giving you coffee? I've been giving you hot chocolate. Every morning, she would drink coffee, and I would drink hot chocolate, and I thought we were both drinking coffee. Yeah. I was drinking hot chocolate the whole time. I I thought I was chugging coffee. I was positive. I was like, I'm a coffee drinker, honey. (laughs) Bob's mom, Martha Caldwell, took her coffee in a travel mug to a queer club in Columbus called Sensations. Martha owned the place. Well, my mom um, is queer, and um, she is just one of those people who's always, um, like, she's an innovator and an entrepreneur. And she's always thinking of ways to take care of her family and her community. And uh, I guess she got with a bunch of her friends, and they all decided as a group that they were going to um, own the, to run this nightclub together. Which which she was doing while she had little kids at home. Yeah, we were little kids. We were like fifth grade, fourth, fifth grade, third grade. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And what do you remember? Like, would you hang out around it? Like, would you go in the daytime when the floor was yeah, sticky? Yeah, during the day I would go uh-huh. to clean. I would remember getting on the dance floor and like kind of like doing my little dancey dance. Um, I remember wanting to help but not being very good at it. So really always being in the way. So they would get, make me busy with like a little thing that was uh, not helping at all. But it was a way to get me, you know, out of the way, I think. Yeah. And like, hey, go have some coffee in the corner, Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Me, yeah, me just drinking coffee in the corner. <laughs> drinking my coffee in the corner, exactly. <laughs> so did you grow up around a lot of queer people? Like, did it feel like um, – yeah, like was it the scene with your mom and your mom's friends in this club? Is that like what your first sort of idea of what community and family looked like was? Yeah, I think I grew up with a lot with a lot of queer people. I and mean, my uncle would bring his partners would um take me out places. Um I, I remember one time my uncle's uh boyfriend uh, do you know who DeBrat is? DeBrat is yeah. this rapper. Yeah. He told me we were gonna go see DeBrat, which was such so, so, like this is massive. I'm in middle school. I cannot believe that like life is this sweet. And then um, we get there and there's like ballet happening. And I was like, oh, maybe this is the opening act for the brat. Like, I was like, when's the brat coming out? And he was like, she's coming, she's coming. And then the whole sh- like show was over. 
And he was like, what did you think? And I was like, I think you lied to me. <laughs> I think you're a deceiver. And you've bamboozled me. And you made me watch Boring Ballet. And I wanted to see the brat tonight, is what I think, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so disappointing. You're like waiting for the brat to come hot, out from the side. Hot like fish grease, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, and when I think about the gay clubs that were around in the 90s, they were like under the interstate on-ramp. You know, they Mm -hmm. were in like an old funeral home. They were invisible, like unless you were looking for them. But if you knew they were there, you knew where to find them. Well, Sensations was – it was pretty visible. Maybe to me because I knew where it was. You know what I mean? Um, It wasn't a – I mean, it wasn't like a particularly um, stunning club, quite frankly. It was probably a hole in the wall. But I remember thinking how cool it was that my mom was one of the owners. Yeah, it's really cool. That's yeah. really cool. Um, and the reason I'm, I want to ha- kind of have a sense of this place is because when I watch We're Here, um, you know, they're typically filmed in communities. Seems like to me where um, the queer community is not immediately visible when you come into town. Yeah. At least from the from the opening of each episode. The opening of the episodes shows, you know. You walking down main streets, and then there's this grand reveal where you, there you are in full drag with your other two co-hosts, and you're walking through. Have you guys seen a drag show before at all? No. 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 We're here in town, and we're uh, doing a drag show. No. Yes. <laughs> As a viewer, um, we're watching how the community responds to you yeah. being very visible and very. Um, unapologetically present and large and colorful and fabulous. Some people would say Um, upsettingly visible. (laughs) Well, I wonder for you, like, when you are filming those scenes, sometimes in communities that are familiar to where you grew up and sometimes very different, like, what's it felt like when you're walking through communities where you're not sure how you'll be received? It is, um, sometimes it feels nice. Sometimes it feels... Uh, volatile. Sometimes it feels, sometimes the weather is too much of a factor to even consider Hmm. the people around you. You know, when you're in Branson, um, yeah, we're in Branson, Missouri, and it was like 24 degrees and I was in a leotard and they were calling the cops on me and I'm in like a seven, eight inch hill walking on an icy sidewalk and I'm freezing, and someone's threatening to call the cops. There's just a lot going on. There's a lot to consider in that moment, you know? Threatening to call the cops, why? Just because we were there, because they didn't like that we were there. They felt like we were causing a scene, I guess. Did the law enforcement show up? I did not stick around to find out. I did not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, when someone said they call the police, I, I take the hint and I leave. My black ass is not about to try to uh, find out. So people go, what happened when they showed up? And I'm like, you think I suck around to find out what happens when the cops show up? Are you wild? No, I yeah. left immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you like filming those scenes where you're sort of um, going out and kind of, you know, like displaying yourself? Like, or does it take kind of like ratcheting up energy to make sure to sort of steal yourself for it? Well, I I think it's both. You know, I I, I love doing drag and I love being in the, because every time I go out, there's always someone who's like so happy to see us because they recognize us. They know who we are and and they feel seen and they feel Mm -hmm. like, like some little gay kid who's like, I cannot believe that Bob, Shangela and Eureka are walking down the street. This is crazy. 
in my town. This is yeah. this is bananas, you know. And then there are times where it just feels um, really. Uh, I'm just over it because like some some of the there we have been in towns that have made it clear they don't want us there. You can tell the money, money slave, I'm not. I'll never buy anything in here again. All these freaking freaks. Okay, well, see ya. But but they don't speak for the whole town. They're just speaking for themselves. You know, towns are not monolithic. You know, the, the citizens of towns are not monolithic. You know. Bob spent her teenage years in Atlanta, then studied theater in college, and started picking up acting jobs with theater companies as far away as Montana. It was there she decided to drop out of college altogether. I'm already in debt. You know, I was three years in. And um, I said, I'm just going to go to New York City. And then I did a tour with a friend, and he said, you, you got to move to New York. That was my next, my next plan was to go to New York City then. And he said, I was like, I'm going to go home, back to Columbus, save up some money, and then move to New York City. And he said, you know, if you actually leave from here, from Missoula, Montana, I will pay for your plane ticket. Oh. If, you, if, you, if you don't go back to Columbus and you leave from here, I'll give, I will. But then I was like, well, I can't leave from here. He goes, okay, well, I'll buy you a ticket from Columbus. But like, it'll be like a week after you get there. You need, you have to go to New York. You got to go now. I just believe in you. He was pushing you to go to New York. Yeah. Did, did it feel like because he wanted to make sure you you took that step, you took that risk for yourself, you just did it? Yeah, I don't want to sound egotistical, but there's been a lot of people in my life who kind of come in, whether it be randomly or what, but they really like believe in me. And they, and they, mm. and they say some really bold stuff. And as a young person, it really empowered me to believe in myself. Um, you know, when I first got to New York City, I had one of those jobs as a canvasser, a person on the street who tries to stop you and goes, hey, do you have time to talk about? Um, oh, yeah. I'm always like, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I was one of those folks for a company <laughs> okay. called Dialogue Direct. <laughs> okay. um, and I was like, and my whole job was just to get people to, you know, give money to uh, these this organization that I was working for. And I was really bad at it. I never got, I never got anyone to sign up, like ever. Um but I got, actually, that's not true. I got one lady to sign up. And on her way, uh, when I stopped her, she goes, you know, I don't really care about this because um, I, I can I can do charity work in other ways. But she's like, there's something special about you and you you shouldn't be working this job. So I'll only sign up if you promise to quit this job. All I wanted was this lady's credit card information. That's all I wanted. And, um, and I just said, okay. And I didn't plan to because I needed the money. Anyway, I got back to the office and I got fired that day anyway. So... <laughs> Because I was bad, and I never got anyone to sign up, so I clearly got fired. <laughs> the only person you got to sign up was this angel telling you to get rid of this job. Yeah. Um, th- wow. I mean, that's incredible that you have these angels who just who just push you to to take steps that are just one step beyond where you can see what's going to happen. Yeah, Kathy and Jimmy was one of them, too. You know, Kathy and Jimmy's a very famous actor. She was on a cruise with me one time, and um, she saw my show, and she thought I was really funny. And then she was like, have you ever auditioned for Drag Race? And I was like, yeah, I've auditioned and and you know I've talked to producers but I never made it on the show and then she took out her phone and she's like dialed some numbers and whoever was she called didn't answer but she goes hey RuPaul I am sitting with the next winner of your show you need to call me and then she hung up Bob is not sure if Kathy's voicemail got her cast but the audition tape she sent in holds its own it was really good my name is Bob the drag queen and it's my dad's name yeah, my dad's name is The Drag Queen, and um, my name Bob stands for Big Old Bottom. I do drag in a little town called New York City. Words I would use to describe myself. Hilarious, 
creative, innovative, trailblazer, ogre, beast, glamazon, African, African, African. Knock, knock, who's there? The total package. You're welcome. Coming up, before Bob was crowned America's Next Drag Superstar by RuPaul, she was performing where she could and getting creative with cash flow. I would get fully dressed up in drag to go do comedy at this show, just like for ungrateful, like, straight people. (laughs) 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 Who did not appreciate the amount of work I was putting into wearing that Forever 21 dress. last few months, you've been sending us your stories about your personal style transformations. And many of you told us you've been feeling good about the recent changes you've made to how you dress. Sometimes I want to dress like I was going to Woodstock. Other times I want to look kind of like a witch. And sometimes I genuinely want to look like a pirate. I came to the realization that clothing should be comfortable. And It doesn't mean that I have to give up cuteness to be comfortable. I've been making my own clothes for the past year and a half or so. So I feel like the pandemic actually gave me a strong understanding of how to dress my body. But we know that there are likely some of you out there who are wanting to make a style change, but are feeling overwhelmed about how to make it happen. I get it. I feel a deep need for a new haircut, but don't know where to turn. So for those of us who are craving some kind of personal style transformation, but feel stuck about what to do next, tell us what's going on there with you too. Send us an email and tell us why you're feeling personal style antsiness. Maybe it's the change of seasons or changes in your body, how you're feeling your age or some other big life shift. And then we'll see if we can find some help for you to figure out your next steps. Write us an email or record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On next week's episode, we talk to Terry Kelber. Out of all the stories we've done on the show, his experience of grief is really truly singular. And there's no easy way to say it. In 2018, his husband, David Buckle, a lawyer turned environmental activist lit himself on fire in Prospect Park in Brooklyn because of deep distress about climate change. I talked with Terry about losing someone so close to you in such a public way. But we also talk about the way that deep grief can transform you. And in Terry's case, how that transformation has brought a lot of beautiful things into his life. If somebody had said to me within the first year of David's death that this would happen, I would have said, you're crazy. I, I can't imagine that. Is what's happened. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. 
Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. When Bob the Drag Queen arrived in New York City at age 22, she didn't immediately have plans to perform in drag. She wanted to do theater, maybe some stand-up. But then she watched the first season of RuPaul's Drag Race in 2009. I was writing stand-up, but I never performed it. My first drag performance was stand-up comedy. And that was also my first time doing stand-up. That's a lot at once. I am nothing if not ambitious. (laughs) What happened that day that you were like, today's the day? Well, I so I was working at this restaurant and I got a lot of my friends to my coworkers to come see me do stand up um, at the New York Comedy Club on the east side of Manhattan. I got like uh, maybe like 16 people to come see me, which is a really big deal. That was massive for me. And I had the biggest audience there. When I went up, I got all the like it was like it, it felt like the fruits of my labor were were paying off in a way they that they never had before because I got these 16 people here and me by myself like it wasn't like when i was in college and i did a play and you're a season ticket holder to the river center theater so you show up it was 16 people specifically who came to see me do stand up so i think I, i i felt i felt a sense of um accomplishment as an artist it's not just a testament to your art form it's also that that how much community you had already created in this town where you showed up knowing no one 16 people will show up yeah i guess so yeah, I never thought of that. You know, I just really, I really loved where I worked at. It was really perfect for me when I was 22 years old. Um, it was, I worked at a tourist trap in New York City called the Jekyll and Hyde Club. It's like a spooky haunted house restaurant. And I used to work there as a waiter, as an actor, and as a bartender. When you first started performing, uh, did you see it as a way to like, oh, this is, this is a career move? Or was it, I enjoy doing this, and I'm going to invest the money it takes to look good on, on stage. When I first started, I remember thinking, I don't care if I'm making money. This is so much fun. Going to thrift stores and fabric stores and wig shops and going to the diner at 4.30 in the morning and learning from other drag queens and making making mixes on GarageBand um, and like sharing ideas with my drag sisters. It was just so fun. I didn't care. I, I, I mean, I was still... I guess the part of me felt like maybe it couldn't have been viable pretty early on because I still had other jobs. Bob kept waiting tables and took a real estate course and started working as a broker renting apartments. She also had some other ideas along the way, like one that was a mix of party promoter and real estate matchmaker. It was called Room Mingle. I've always been like had ideas. Room Mingle <laughs> was this idea where I would throw parties for people who need roommates. So you'd wear a tag if you like have a home, if you like have an apartment, if you need an apartment, have a room, need a room. That's what it was. And then I did these photo shoots with my friends where they would all um, dress up like different like archetypes. Bob, I believe I believe if you throw a party right now, you could charge top dollar for people <laughs> looking to be matchmaked. They're match made by you for who they were going to live with. I love that. Putting cool people together <laughs> in cooler apartments was my was my uh, <laughs> it was my catch. Sketchy. 
Honestly, putting cool people together in cooler apartments. Oh my god. Honestly, I'm an icon. Like my, anyone who knows me to tell you that I have ideas faster than I can do them. I will never be. Able, I will never be able to do all my ideas ever in a million years. I have too many ideas to do. I, I, I also one time years ago I bought a I bought a vending machine. <laughs> Years ago, I bought a vending machine because I've always had these ideas of like how to like make money because, uh, you know, what, when, what was in the vending like, machine? Candy. What do you? Were you crack? Like, what do you think? Was the, what do you think was in? The, it was <laughs> chips and snacks and soda and stuff. Where did the vending machine live? It ended up living in Brownsville, New York, um, and I abandoned it. It is probably still there to this day. I've never. I never went back to fill it up. I never. It, it was too much work, and it was too little return. I remember I, I handed the keys over to this lady, and I was like, "One day I'll come back for this." Oh, and and you did not. You did not. Never did. So to that woman, congratulations! You got yourself a vending machine. Uh, Bob, I want to pause, and I, I want you to look at your phone and tell me: Is the tour still going on? No, the tour ended a while back. What do you think? Is yeah. this a keeper? It's it, it's nice. I looked at two today. And I this one was a, was a lot nicer than the um, one I saw before, but it is not as big. Uh. Um, and and my mother likes company, and I definitely want to um, you know create a space where um, she can have uh, visitors. She's she a, loves a, a former club owner. She likes to have some people around her. Exactly. Um, how did performing in drag? Did it change your romantic life at all? No, not really. I mean, I didn't really have a lot of romance outside of like sex um, for a really long time. I just kind of like uh, maybe I was just too focused on other things to actually benefit from that. You know, uh-huh. I didn't even have a partner until I was uh, in my 30s. I got my first mm. boyfriend at like 32, I think. And you're 36-ish now. Is that right? 36. Yeah. Uh-huh. Are you still with that partner? Yeah, he's 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 uh, he's right in the other room. And how did you two come into each other's lives? We met on Grinder. Do you know Grinder? Uh huh. And how did you know? What was different about that hookup where you were like, huh? Maybe this could, this could could be a relationship. Well, you know, I don't know. Jacob always kind of cringes when I tell the story, but well, he slept over, which I didn't always have hookup sleepover, and we had breakfast in the morning, and. Um, we also, uh, he texted me on New Year's and was mm-hmm. like, happy New Year's. I was thinking about you. And I thought it was really nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's sweet. Like, I thought that was so nice that he texted me on New Year's. Yeah. I was like, wow, this guy's, this guy's really thinking about me. Um, do you feel like you have romance now? Yeah, I have two partners. You know, me and Jacob are together, and then my partner Ezra and I are also together. So I have romance for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I—it's not that I wasn't not a romantic person. I wasn't a romantic or anything. I just um, was maybe focused on more focused on other things in my life at the time. Mm-hmm. And tell me about going from not really having relationships to maintaining two relationships simultaneously. Like, what have you? Have you how do you do that? To everyone out there wondering, polyamory is very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) To anyone who's been wondering, I'm here to tell you, it be expensive. Um, And, but that's just because I I, I live in two places. Um, Me and Jacob live together, and then me and Ezra live together, but Jacob and Ezra do not live together. So I live in two, two separate places right now. 
Along with living with two partners, Bob is still making time to visit her mom in Atlanta. Martha is coming up on 60 years old. She started having health issues in her 40s and has some mobility difficulties now. And that's something they're both thinking about while they shop for a new house. I always told my mom that I wanted to, you know, give her a place to stay and that I've always wanted to, like, it's been it's been a, for a very, very long time I've had the dream of, of doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. When you would tell your mom, like, I'm going to take care of you one day, I want to do, I want to buy you a house one day, before you were... Uh, famous before you felt like you had more financial stability? Like, did, did you feel like you needed to prove yourself to your mom, or do you feel like she she saw that? Well, my mom really believes in me. My mom, like, but maybe, like, too much. Like, my mom thinks that the sun, like, rises when I wake up and it sets when I go to sleep. Like, my mom really thinks I am it. Like, my mom, my mom really, really believes in me. Uh and it really helped me believe myself. So I think that she thought it was genuine. And she's never like, oh, my God. She's like, yeah, this makes sense. You said you would. And here you are doing it. Is there like a moment where you can think of like feeling that back up from your mom that stands out? Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of moments. But one that sticks out right now is, you know, I have this childhood friend who um, was a really close friend of mine as a kid. We were like really close. And he was saying some really homophobic stuff on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And my mom, like, let him have it. Like, she was like, you can never come to my house again. I cannot believe you are saying this. And you claim to be friends with my son. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And she, like, lit him up. And she was, like, hot. And I called her. She was, like, very angry. My my mom is definitely uh, more than an ally. She is an advocate. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Do you talk to your mom about... Like what it's been like to be a queer person in the South and what your experiences were compared to her experiences? Sometimes. My mom is a little more conservative than I am. And I, I don't mean conservative in like Republican. I just want to be very clear. My mother is not a Republican. But I'm re- I'm really radical. And my mom is less so. My mom's Christian. I'm not. You know, my mom was born in the 60s. I was born in the 80s. Um, so there's, there's a lot of differences in us. And my mother is much more of a peacekeeper and I'm much more of a rebel rouser. She's she's MLK and I'm Malcolm X, you know? Like I'm not I'm I'm not a pacifist and I and I do not believe in nonviolence personally. Mhm. So you're describing your mom, but your mother if anybody if she feels like anybody's coming for you. Um she is not as calm <laughs> as you said. Yeah, no, she's not very calm when it comes to that. That is true. Touche. Touche. But she's not going to, like, beat them up. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she will if you, if you push her. Maybe she actually will. Who knows? That's Bob the Drag Queen. You can catch her show, We're Here, on HBO Max. And she also hosts the podcast, Sibling Rivalry, with fellow drag race winner, Monet Exchange. They're doing a tour of live shows this fall. You can catch those dates at bobthedragqueen.com. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Lily Clark and Affie Yellow Duke, with help from Julia Furlan and Savannah Collins. The rest of the team is Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, Andrew Dunn, and this week we welcome our new executive producer, Liliana Maria Percy-Ruiz. We are pumped to work with you. 
The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S. And the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let me see your t-shirt. What is on your t-shirt? I, I'm not proud of this t-shirt. I, okay. I, I will show it to you, but I, it's a Pfizer shirt. A Pfizer shirt with a rainbow on it. I'm not anti-Pfizer. I just don't want to think that I'm like the queen of big pharma. So everyone out there, listen, the vaccine is free. Go get it. It's free. Wait, what shirt are you wearing? What shirt are you wearing? What am I wearing? It's an Appalachian Trail t-shirt. Wow. So Isn't it pretty? So smug. So smug. <laughs> She's like, mine is for nature, honey. Well, I will tell you, that's a very long trail and I was on it for about 50 <laughs> feet. So I bought the t-shirt. And you know I got the t-shirt. <laughs> Oh, did you not do the whole trail? You did 50 no. feet of the trail? It's from Georgia to Maine. I'm not doing that. And just turned around and got a shirt. Oh, my God. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.